<laughs> All right. So, as I was saying last week, uh, Ken was going over, like, the future, uh, some doctrines on millennialism, I guess, and differences that Christians have on that. And so now we're going to look back toward creation. And they have, surprisingly, differences about that, too. They differ about water fountains, carpet color, many things. But uh, as far as the young earth creation view, the difference being, Ken was presenting it from a neutral point of view, I guess you could say. He was just saying, these groups believe this. These groups believe this. Well, I actually do hold the position of young earth creation viewpoint myself. And so as we go along, I'll be making the case for it. And if you disagree, that's fine. Please do, right? I mean, uh, you know, bring it up. Bring up disagreements, concerns, and we'll you know, discuss them nonviolently. <laughs> we will, I, I swear. Well, at least I won't start it. <laughs> Self-defense, that's a different matter. Tired of getting beat up in a parking lot over this. So the, the class length is four sessions. Oh, man. Now I know how Green Lantern felt. Except that it's red. I told you I was a nerd. I found out today, though, I am not a geek. But I am a nerd. Yeah. You can ask Jeff for the definitions on those. Uh, we're gonna, supposed to have four sessions, today being the first one. We want to, in the beginning of the class, glorify God first for his creation, no matter how you feel that he did it, okay, or, or when you think he did it. Sound good? Uh, we'll be going over what is young earth creation. They call it white. You see, they call it yek, which I kind of don't like that nickname because it almost like, sounds like yek. That's disgusting. You know? It does not have an H on the end. So um, We'll go over uh, briefly some other creation views. Whoops. And then we'll go over the relevance. You know, how important is it? that we know about this or accept this, believe this, discuss this. And then I'll be talking about uh, some evidence for young earth creation. And we'll be drawing from scripture, astronomy, biology, geology. But it could be a, a bit of a mixture on those. And I don't, I don't promise I'll pull from every single one of them. And I might kind of overemphasize some more than others. It's just, I haven't had, I guess, uh, I've, I've researched all this stuff pretty much on my own. I didn't, and so um, it's not necessarily balanced from all of those different topics in science. Okay? So, be ready to uh, set apart, First Peter 3.15, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I have had discussions with people, and I hope it was helpful, you know, as far as bringing them a little closer to the Lord. Um, knowing what I do about the young earth viewpoint, I share it with people, you know, openly, typically online, I guess, in discussions, but in person as well. I'm willing to talk about it with anybody. If you know somebody that you think it could benefit, then send them my way. That's fine. I, I'm really happy to talk with them about it. Now, here we go. Creation glorifies God. Psalm 19, probably one of the most famous ones about that. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. 
Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So the heavens declare the glory of God. Anybody want to try that number? That's the number. That's the estimated number of stars exist. If anybody tells you that they have figured out exactly how many they are, you may consider them a liar. Well, okay, mistaken. Because the Bible says nobody can number them. And that's a mighty big number. This thing baffles me. Does anybody even understand a trillion? When you hear about the def national deficit and stuff like that, it's like 35 trillion. What, the, what number is that? Big, I know. <laughs> anyone want to give it a shot? I, I hope I didn't write it wrong. I meant to write 70 sextillion. Did I write too many? <laughs> I told you we couldn't number them. Look at that. I can't even, can't even write the number correctly. Huh? I could be, yeah. Anyway, yeah, 70 sextillion. So take three zeros off of that and then we got it. I probably miscounted them. But, um, and the Bible also says that he knows their number. And he knows them, he knows their name. So, can you imagine that? Oh, that's star number <coughs> 30 trillion, 565 million. <laughs> he knows which number it is. And he knows the name. It's probably easier for him to just tell us the name. Okay, men cannot count them. He can only estimate. How do they figure that? If you can't count them, is that, there's that many. You can't even see them all. They go by the density of stars in the sky at certain depths with telescopes, real powerful ones and stuff like that. They, they figure out, okay, well, if that's this much volume of the universe and we count up this many stars in that little sliver, there's X millions of those slivers. Let's multiply. There we go. There's our estimate. Huge. God knows their number and names, I said. Here's my question. Why did he create stars we can't see? Now, I'm not trying to indict God or question him. I'm just curious. Why did he create stars that we can't see? You can only count, like, what is it, 5,000-something are visible to the naked eye? Something like that? We're not the only ones that glorify. Did he know this? The Hubble telescope would be a coming, and the James Webb? Did, is it possible he created the universe for constant discovery? So far, we're up to 70 sextillion and counting. <laughs> Or, and estimating, I should say. Okay, did he create the universe for continuous discovery? Possibility. Let's have a peek at Hubble's greatest hits. I think this, this video clip is just uh, a few minutes long. Four minutes, I think. Pretty deep. Why did he make it so big? Why is the universe so huge? Expanding, uh, apparently. Redshift. Could it be to demonstrate his power? It's like beyond everything. I mean, when you think about those spaces, I mean, the distances, then the numbers get just like that thing, the 70 trillion, sextillion. I mean, can't even imagine it. Okay. God's creation glorifies him. What is young earth creation? Let's talk about that for a minute. People, that's the belief that the earth is young. Yeah. What else? 
Young Earth creationism holds that the universe was created by God as described in Genesis 1 through 11 and holds that that uh, and interprets that as history, not um, what is it? Semi-poetry and there's a couple others. Um, and that macroevolution does not exist and the world is under 10,000 years old. Sources, how do, how do we figure that out? How do, you, how do young earth people figure out that it's under 10,000 years? Does the Bible have a scripture somewhere that says the earth is this old? No. But it has evidence in different scriptures that they can put together. The most famous probably is Usher, who did it in the 1600s. Bishop Usher, Irishman. Uh, but they get it from partially from the genealogical, I guess you could call them ladders, uh, in Genesis 5 and 11, and biblical chronology scholarship for Abraham to Christ. There are some differences among authors in the biblical calculations, but all hold that the earth age is less than 10,000 years, with most of them holding that it's under 7,000 years. There's the two right there that actually turned out the same. They found, uh, they, they, by their calculations, it came out 4004 BC. There's Usher in the 1600s when he published The Annals of the World. And then Dr. Floyd Nolan Jones came out with the same number in 1993. Here is a table. It actually has 32 people on it. The table is too big. I cut it. I, I showed 1 through 7 and also 30 through 32. Yes, I arrogantly inserted my own name in there as well and told how old I calculated it to be in 2023. The audacity of me, I can't believe because these are biblical chronologists probably studied it their whole life and me in the past year kind of just came up with this number. And that was only studying it intermittently, you know, sporadically, and they probably do it all the time. But uh, as you can see, some people hold that it was 5500 B.C. and... It goes all the way down to the last one. The youngest one says that it was created in 3836. All right, let's see. Genesis 5 talks about the genealogy from Adam to Noah. And it says, did you ever wonder why it does that? A genealogy doesn't have to have the age of the father when he sired that son. Does it? It doesn't have to have it. Why is that in there? And such and such was 130 when he had this kid. And then that kid was 150 or so when he had this kid. Well, they give exact numbers, but... I've got a feeling maybe God was leaving a testimony knowing what was coming. Anyway, um, Genesis 11 talks about the genealogy from Noah to Abraham. And that adds up to 890 years. So we have Adam to Noah, 1056, Noah to Abraham... 890. Those are pretty reliable with one exception, which I'll cover in just a second. Then you got Bible history scholars that, that figured out from Abraham to Christ at 2,058 years. And the Bible does indicate that there are 42 generations in that span. It talks about the exile, you know, 14 generations from Abraham to David, I think, David to the exile and then exile to Christ. I might have mixed up the order there a little bit, but it adds up to 42 generations. And that, to add up to 2,058 years, that would mean that they were having their child at around 49. Or now, which sounds pretty old to us, but back closer to Abraham, 
the numbers were probably higher because people were living longer. And back up to Adam, it was a lot longer. Okay, and then from the calendar, from, from Christ to the present is 2,023 years. Then, if you add in the Masoretic Emission, what is that? Well, the Masoretic text, I've got a, I've, I'm trying to put links on here, and you know what, what I'll do is I'll put a, uh, I was going to say I'll write a shortcut. Maybe next class I'll do that, but uh, I'll try to put a shortcut right to this uh, slideshow so that if you want to study it more, you can go in there and click those links, okay? <clears throat> oh, actually, and, and Scott, you said you're going to download it and you'll have it available that way, and the links are live. Okay, good. Yeah, so if you want to study further on those things, you can uh, look into it for yourself. That one, I watched a video about a guy making some arguments that six of those generations in the Genesis 11 genealogy, I believe it is, were chopped 100 years off. And they did it because they wanted to disqualify Jesus from being able to be the high priest. And if they made sure that Shem lived, I think, later than he did, they would achieve that. Something like that. You can look into that in more detail if you want to, but the Masoretic appears to have an error, according to this guy, and it adds up to 650 years. Well, what did they compare it to? The Septuagint. Septuagint still, for those six generations, say such and such was 130 when he had his son, instead of 30. The Masoretic would say 30. And then the next guy would be 100 and something, and it would chop off that 100 and say, okay, he was 40. So if you add in those 650 years, and then the last one, the, Gregory, the Gregorian calendar omission, although that may have already been accounted for in those earlier things, and that's where I get my 6681. That's about how old I think the universe is. I know, starlight, it's so far away. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Not today. Billions of years away. Okay, young earth creation view. When did it start in the Bible? They've held this view for pretty much all time since the Bible was written, except until, I mean, even, you know, Jewish in the Old Testament considered it to be around something like 5,000 B.C. that it was created. And, and then uh, it was viewed as recent until the early 1800s. Well, what happened then? After that, it was largely subdued when secular science got the upper hand and clergy compromised with them by reinterpreting Genesis. Until now, it was always interpreted as historical. I mean, until that time, not now, but until the early 1800s. The anti-biblical bias, a lot of times I think people are under the impression, well, science is pretty objective. I'm a student of science, and I can tell you it's not. Scientists are people and they have flaws and they have pride and they have arrogance and they want money and all kinds of different things. Um, we'll talk about that a little more when I bring up evidence and stuff. But if you uh, take a look at the book, Why Scientists Accept Evolution, there's a picture of it right there. That was its first printing in 1961. You get an opportunity to see some pretty interesting stuff because you can see the correspondence from these guys back and forth. Darwin to Asa Gray and Darwin to Charles Lyell. And Charles Lyell was a huge influence on Darwin with the, you know, particularly the long ages and everything. 
and it's known that Lyell falsified some stuff about Niagara Falls. But we'll talk about that when we discuss geology and stuff. Anyway, there was a bias. Uh, Lyell even had one, uh, one quote in one of his letters that said, we must be rid of the mosaic record. Does that sound like objective science? Or it sounds like he has an agenda and he's going to go cherry-picking stuff, maybe even falsifying stuff. And it's reprinting. Looks more like that. There's the cover of that one in case you want to pick it up. Doesn't cost very much. I bought it. Uh, I bought the one on the left twice and lost it twice. <laughs> so I currently don't. I might have it in my house somewhere if you want to borrow it, but I'd, I'd be hunting for a little bit. You got to give me a, maybe a week or two to find it, okay? <laughs> but yeah. Okay, so biblical creation started with the Bible. Early 1800s is when it started to be challenged. And then when did it resurge? When did it regain popularity? It's back. I mean, there's creation websites all over the place. And different views, granted, and we'll talk about those in a second. Whoops. With the publication of the Genesis Flood by Whitcomb and Morris in 1961, book is considered by many to be the trigger of the modern, recent biblical creation movement. That's the person that got the ball rolling again, pretty much. I'm not saying it ever totally went out of, you know, belief, but he's the one that got the, the movement going again, the steering back towards believing in a young world and a young earth. Okay, other creation views. Let's talk about those for a second. What are the other ones? Well, for and by the way, don't feel free to interrupt me and ask questions and or make comments or if you adamantly disagree. Tell me that. Did I? I said don't feel free? No, I meant do feel free to interrupt. We knew what you meant. Did I say don't? I'm sorry. Okay. We know where your mind went. Yeah. In the gutter. All right. Creation views. Atheism. Atheism, of course, holds to an old earth. You are never going to meet an atheist that believes in a young earth. Uh, and he also believes in macroevolution. What do I mean by macroevolution? Uh, evolution is a word. If you discuss this with people, you've got to make sure you define what you're talking about. Because, yes, change over time exists. <laughs> of course. Of course it does. But it's my belief that there wasn't, unlike, we'll talk about that more in the biological stuff, but Darwin had this uh, sketch that he made in his notes of the tree. The tree of life, you know, and it started from the single cell organism and it branched up, the, went up these branches and stuff, and he wrote, I think, question mark. That's what he wrote. But uh, that's macroevolution, going all the way from a single cell to philosophers, to a person, okay? Uh, protozoa to a philosopher, I can't remember what the expression is, but it, that's the, basically what they're trying to say. Actually, before the single cell, right? Because if you're going to do that, if you're going to exclude God and you're going to have a totally secular, atheistic view, you've got to have some way that life got started. Life had to get started. And there's some big problems with that. We can talk about that. There's some big chemical problems and there's some big biological problems. It's a mighty long jump from a few amino acids to a, a cell. A cell makes a 747 look like a paperclip. <laughs> At the molecular level, anyway. There's stuff we haven't even figured out about them yet. Okay. Anyway, atheists hold those. 95% uh, of the science community holds this position. 
And those who do not typically keep their head down. Are there Christians among, you know, hardcore sciences? Yep. But a lot of times they keep their head down and their mouth shut, knowing that any mention of creation or even possibly intelligent design, um, mention of creation by God can get grants revoked, get one fired, or get one flung to the outskirts of relevance in the scientific community. Give you some little rinky-dink job where you can't do any harm or where you're not talking to the press. Anybody see that movie? Expelled? That talks about this. In fact, Ben Stein, the, the uh, host on that movie, he didn't even really oppose evolution per se. He, he actually admitted, well, that was a pretty amazing revolutionary idea by Darwin, but he had no idea about the complexity of the cell and everything and all of this. What Stein's, he used to be, uh, I don't know if he still works, if he's totally retired, but he was a civil rights lawyer and then I think later an economist. So it kind of made sense to me, the civil rights thing. He didn't like people getting treated unfairly when they would bring to the table, hey, I'm studying this and this and this, and it really looks designed. It just couldn't have happened on accident. And, and what happens, sure enough, they get fired or flung to the outskirts. And that's what he had a problem with. Now, some people say he overdid it because he was showing like pictures of Nazis in concentration camps and stuff like that. But the, uh, the science community... A lot of them are uncomfortable with that stuff, with that type of talk. Ninety-five percent of them atheistic. Some atheists also believe that aliens seeded life on Earth. That's known as panspermia. Well, that concept dodges abiogenesis, getting life from non-living chemicals. Uh, it dodges the failure of abiogenesis, but invites infinite regress. Because you know what the next question is, right? If aliens seeded life on Earth, where'd they come from? Who seeded life on their planet? And round and round we go, pretty much indefinitely, right? <laughs> I, I have some fun. I do have a little fun with the as much stress, as much as it stresses me out making presentations. Anyway, uh, here's a guy. This is interesting. His name is Francis Crick. Anybody know what he's famous for? DNA, DNA molecule, the structure of it. That's right. That's Watson, his colleague on it, and it's Maurice, uh, I think his name's Williams. He was also the third person awarded the Nobel Prize for it. Uh, for some reason, the Nobel Prizes can't be split more than three ways. So Rosalind Franklin, upon whose work they built, didn't get credit. I always thought it was because she got cancer and passed away at the age of 37. I thought that it was because the Nobel Prize cannot be awarded posthumously. That that didn't happen until 1974, and their work was in the 50s, so that wasn't why. But it could have been because she was the fourth one, and Nobel goes up to three people max, I guess. I don't know. I hope that wasn't the case, but it just I I kind of feel bad when I read about that because it just seemed like she didn't get full credit for what she should have. I mean, her name is mentioned a lot when you talk about the DNA. Anyway, Francis Crick, the one pointing the, the pointer at the molecule they built right there, he subscribed to what we just talked about, to panspermia, that aliens planted life. Why? Because he knew that DNA basically is an information system. It has information imposed upon it. 
I can scribble with this marker all over this, thing, all over this whiteboard, but that's not information. But if I start writing letters that can be interpreted and something done with it, now it's information. There's a few other qualifications, but um, he knew that there was no chemical reason for that to happen by itself. To get the, to get the DNA base pairs in the right order, that it would lay down the right amino acids in the, and make a string that folded exactly right to make the clump of protein that has to be exactly the right three-dimensional shape to be functional. And he knew that that wouldn't just happen on its own for just a chemical reason. So, aliens must have done it. Or design. Intelligent design. Yeah, that's true. Intelligent design, contrary to young Earth creation, does not try to argue the source of the intelligence. They just argue that such and such is designed. This has to be designed. There's no way that it could just happen randomly. But they don't try to say who, which is disappointing. But I guess if they're not for you, if they're not against you, they're for you. Okay, other creation views. That was atheism. Christian old Earth typically includes theistic evolution, but I. I don't know for sure. Maybe somebody can actually enlighten me a little bit on this. Are there old are there Christians who believe in an old earth without evolution? Okay. Is there a specific name for it? Um, older creationism. Hugh, Hugh Ross would advocate that there were periods of reasons to believe. Periods yeah. of creation. Okay. Um, and not evolution between those two. Right, okay. Progressive creationism, yep. Yeah. Okay. So their, their uh, old earth creation could, may or may not include theistic evolution, which I used to be, I, I can't say I was a theistic evolutionist, but early in my Christian years, I subscribed to the possibility of theistic evolution. In fact, I remember a Marine asking me about it when we were out on maneuvers in uh, Fort Bragg. I know that's an army base, but we went up there and trained with artillery guys and stuff. I was in the Marines. But he asked me that very question. He said, do you think... Uh, Genesis is literal, just like it's written, or do you think that really is kind of like a figure, figurative language about the creation and it really had evolution and stuff included? At the time, I told him, I don't know. I don't know. But I've studied a lot more stuff since, and I've seen a lot of things that aren't in the textbooks, and they're probably never going to be. I have a question. Yeah. Would this, this view... Mm -hmm. Hold to the fact that maybe like the first day was not just a 24 hour day, but maybe thousands of years. Yep, that's the one I'm going to bring up. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's the date age theory. We're on the same page. Are you going to get into pre Cambrian? Framework, uh, not this class. Upcoming. Upcoming. If you want to talk about specific scientific evidences and stuff, we can't. I'm going to show you some stuff that's shocking that I doubt you've ever seen. I know you haven't seen it in a uh, public school textbook. But anyway, um, another one of the old Earth views, framework hypothesis came around in 1924. What that does is reclassify Genesis as not a historical narrative, but figurative and or semi-poetic. Semi-poetic. Um, and now, like I said, I have links. If you want to look into those further and get more details on them, I've got links down there at the bottom, and I, I footnote them in the in the text. I try to remember to do that. I hope I didn't miss any. 
Then we have the gap theory. The gap theory is an old earth Christian viewpoint that says between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, the very first two verses of the Bible, there were billions of years. And that evolution happened and everything pretty much that the seculars put forth took place in that window. They also talk about a Luciferian flood and some other things too. That I'm not super familiar with that one, but that's the basics of it. Billions it's also of part of it, isn't it? That the day wasn't established until after Genesis one two. The evening and the morning, or the first day, you mean? Well, it didn't. It didn't separate into a day and night. They created the moon and the sun, which is later. I'd have to look at the text again. You got me wondering about it. Day-age theory. This is what some people have been mentioning already. That's the interpretive view that each of the six creation days are really long, indefinite periods where stuff happened. Where that's the stuff that secular science has concluded. And the stuff that I'm going to attempt to shoot full of shotgun holes in the next three classes. Uh, I am going to. I mean. But, like I said, I'm wide open to uh, disagreement and discussion. If you're if you're pretty science minded and you know a lot about that stuff already, please go ahead. By, by all means, bring it up. I don't want to force my convictions on anybody. Um, oh yeah, I put a I put a footnote in there. It conflicts with the Hebrew scholarship of the 24-hour day Yom. I guess there are occasions where the word Yom means era or something like that in the Bible. But in this case, it's not used in that context. It's not used that way. Why did he say in the evening and the morning were the first day? And the evening and the morning were the second day? It strikes me just like the, the ages of those guys when they had their, kid, their child. It's like he left that in there on purpose, knowing what was going to happen. If you read in Peter, he talks about denying the flood and... Uh, Hugh Ross, in fact, does deny a global flood, as far as I, as, as I recall. He's, uh, there are a couple different beliefs about that. problem is Peter also says time doesn't mean anything to God. True. Yeah, he does. It says thousand, a day is a thousand years to God, and a thousand years is a day. Is just, I like the way you put it. It's, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, he transcends time. It's a yom. Right? Yeah, he uses... It's a yom. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Progressive... Uh, Let's see. Oh, yeah. Progressive creation was mentioned as well. And um, I think that was Phil that brought that up. It incorporates the day-age theory. And it has billions of years in evolution with God taking supernatural creative actions along the way. There were certain periods where he did, I guess, miraculous creation. And then there was a long time and then did it again, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. He had to think about it for a while. He had to? <laughs> like what he was going to do. So he probably went and created some stars and came back to that later. That's another question. Yeah, but he could have done it all at once, right? Yeah. He could have just took like a half hour or less. And all of it was done. He says he says it, said it, and there was. Yeah. But he, <coughs> he set that six days and then the seventh day. You know, he rested and set an example for man to rest. And we'll get into more of that. Anyway, general objections. Um, evolution conflicts with Bible theology. Now, remember, this is my opinion. I'm sometimes I'm stating my opinion. And uh, I, 
evolution seems to conflict with Bible theology in the sequence of creation. And this is the most critical one. Yes, evolution says the stars, the Big Bang happened, then the stars, and then the protoplanets, and then planets, and then life developed on every star planet, right? Whereas that's not the order it talks about it in creation. Stars were already, I mean, stars happened on, I, think, I believe, day four. And things were already on Earth by that time. But here's the most critical one that I have a problem with. If evolution is true, I agree with Richard Dawkins, then how can the gospel be true? Because death and suffering would have had to come before sin. Correct? Am I right about that? Rather than a result of sin. That's the one I think is uh, most critical to me. I know there are some folks that try to propose you know, alternative explanations. Seems like intellectual gymnastics to me. And I've also seen a lot of other things that have now convinced me that the world is young. And I'll show you those later. But Dawkins was a great physicist of the biology. Yeah, Hawking, you mean? Uh, Hawking. Hawking, yeah. Hawking ventured beyond his uh, science and went into philosophy of science. And he made comments and statements in that regard. He said that uh, because there's such thing as gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Anybody got a gr gr Does anybody have a grammatical problem with that? What can do something before it exists? I've never heard of such a thing. I've never scientifically observed such a thing. Huh? I have a logical problem with that. Yeah, exactly right. I know. I know. It was a philosophy of science versus science that challenged scriptural history. It was a philosophy of science. It's reasoning is always built on assumptions or beliefs first. And I told you about those books, uh, Why Scientists Accept Evolution. Well, that one book published uh, in print. It was printed out a couple times. But uh, if you want to take a look at what that philosophy was in their minds and hearts, then take a peek at those, uh, at that. Okay, this was just a very small, brief sample. Um, sure, there are other, who knows how many other views Christians hold about creation, uh, but I'm, I'm sure I skipped over multiple ones, and I didn't cover these very thoroughly. I just wanted you to be aware that there are multiple views, and that you can, at your leisure, you can go and explore those further and uh, see if any of those convict you. I wanted to be able to take the time and uh, make the case for young earth's creation, let you be the judge, always willing to discuss, it, discuss uh, any creation view or topic, and I already said, please send anybody my way that you think might benefit. Well, what's the relevance? Why is it important? Who cares? We all believe in Jesus, right? And believe in that we're saved, praise God. You know, is, of course that's critical. Um, so I am a little disappointed you didn't share my view that I gave class. Well, I thought yours was framework. No. Uh -huh. Basically, John Walton is more of a temple inauguration. It's not really framework. Temple offering. Inauguration. Seven days of creation was yes. God inaugurating his temple to the earth with the temple. Mm -hmm. So, again, yeah, it's a different view. Okay, okay. And that's the name of it, though? Temple inauguration? Uh, I don't know that. I mean, that's. 
I'm not sure it has an official title. Okay. Do you mind if I email you and, and ask you for the title? Yeah, I'm not sure I've seen an official title for that. No, I meant for the guy for the guy's work. Yeah, the author yeah, and the. No, uh, maybe he's got some articles and stuff out there. I could take a peek. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I think that was also when I was um, uh, working at the library. It's a lot of Wednesday nights. Oh, wait, was it on Wednesday night you did it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I only made it to a couple of your classes because a lot of Wednesday nights I was working. Sorry. Yeah. Just, just a point uh, in, in view of relevance. We are men, and what we present in our opinions and our views is theory. Uh huh. We pointed out that science becomes philosophy is when science wants to make a theory a fact. Mm -hmm. In yeah. the same sense, when we start projecting our thoughts, we're making a theory a fact. So is the gospel a theory? Depends on your perspective. We believe it as a fact. I do. It's a fact. To the death. Those things that happen are mm -hmm. a fact. But if we project our views onto it, then fortunes of it become theory. Yeah, and I accept that perception is kind of the name of the game. Perception is reality to people. It's how you're, how you're perceiving it. And it influences interpretation of both evidence and scripture. We'll talk about that when we talk about the evidence. You know, the secular... Because a secular person and a creation person, science guys, they'll see the same dinosaur bone. It doesn't come with a tag on it that says, you know, such and such BC. But, but you gotta remember, why are they? Why do they interpret it differently? We'll talk about that. You've got to remember on, on the island of Crete, early yeah. Greek scientists yeah. found these bones and came to the conclusion there was a cyclops when it was a mastodon. Yeah, good so, example. Yeah, yeah. The, the big, the big uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, nose orifice they thought was the eye, and uh, they thought that the orbital orifices were the were the ears. Right. So, yeah. So science can come to wrong conclusions, but we also have to remember something. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The entire science science paradigm can be in error. And entire because uh, what Michael, are you trying to say that all of these scientists that with all these PhDs are wrong? Yep, that's what I believe. But don't be shocked because uh, Ptolemy came out with a geocentric model of the solar system, which is false. The Earth is not at the center of the solar system. We know that, and it was accurate. It worked. He could predict where such and such planet was going to be on such and such a date. So. I mean, the science community wasn't as big then, I guess, but... But then when Galileo proved him wrong, he was put in house arrest by the city. So yeah. we've got to keep things in balance. Yeah. Galileo, in fact, uh, he believed that we should be studying the scripture for specific revelation, and he thought we were obliged to study God's revelation in nature. He thought that we should do that. We should be reading from both books, as he put it. Interesting guy. Probably knew the Bible better than the Pope. Okay, so what is the relevance? That's the last thing we'll probably cover. We're running low on time. Uh, and then we'll get into some of the evidence. And we'll start with Scripture next class, okay? Evidence from Scripture. Um, what about the relevance? Like I said, who cares if we believe in Jesus and, and that and the, the gospel? Isn't that the most important thing? Well, yeah, it's pretty important. Let's take a look. Is it a salvation issue? No. Oh, 
Sorry, Ken, I stole it. <laughs> he who believes and is baptized and believes the earth is a youngster will be saved. <laughs> Heretical Michael spewing out cereal. Okay, can we disagree on young earth creation? Of course. I said before, I think I said when I introduced the, what class I was going to be giving, I said make every effort. This is from Ephesians 4. To keep, look at what it says. Make every effort to keep the unit. Why does it take effort to maintain unity? If everybody felt the same way and agreed on everything, well, probably wouldn't take much effort. That'd be pretty easy. Do you ever see a couple that gets married and they just agree on almost everything? We've never had a fight. Well, well, oh, I better not make my next comment then. <laughs> I was going to say, if you marry someone where you have to kind of negotiate and compromise and, and make efforts to agree, then then I think that, you know, uh, fosters development, really, you know, in maturity and in Christ. But I don't want to disparage the ones that had it easy and they agreed on every single thing. Some people got to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Okay, do quacks accept it? Quacks being, you know. How about your bias, Joe? Some, but they accept anything. Kool-Aid drinking lady with a tin hat on. I thought that was pretty good. I add, I'll be honest, I added the Kool-Aid symbol on her cup. <laughs> she just had the tin hat on. What's that? <laughs> cool, I drink. Uh, how about smart, rational people? Yep. There's one of my favorite ones, one of my favorite creation scientists. This guy starts with uh, young earth creation beliefs and concepts, and then he builds his scientific um, theories on that, his creation theories. He's, formally, he's actually a PhD physicist, formerly worked for Sandia Labs out in New Mexico. His name is Russell Humphreys, and one of the things that he achieved using this was, you guys know that uh, planets have magnetic fields, right? And you know that over time they weaken, yes? Even a little magnet, you probably had it where it wouldn't stick to the refrigerator anymore, it keeps falling off. All right. He, using a young Earth model, predicted the magnetic strength of Uranus and Neptune pretty bloody accurately. He was far, far closer than secular science. And that's just a sample. I mean, we'll talk more about astronomy and stuff like that. But he's one of my favorite ones. That's a picture, just an artist rendering, I think, of Voyager 2 as it was going to go out and sail past uh, Uranus and Neptune. I think it was in 86. Uh, I can't remember the years. But it was a long voyage. That was Russell Humphreys. Oh, here, here we go. Here is another one on my, this is my science hero right here. Louis Pasteur. Now, his, his quote that I like so much, he said that the more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the Creator. So he was a believer. He's Catholic, I believe. And uh, he was from France. And he, what was he famous for? Well, I've got this. Yeah. Well, also, just microbiology in general. He's pretty much considered the... The father of microbiology. You guys think that's okay from? Okay, yeah, that one right there. Did I just look at people's eyes? That. Oh, oh. <laughs> Industrial strength. <laughs> Burn your retina. Uh, 
Yeah, but he he actually I also read that he wasn't actually much you know super smarter than his peers. But he's very thorough. He didn't miss much. He got his PhD solving this crystallizing problem of some kind when the the rest of the chemical the chemistry community couldn't figure it out. And I, I got that picture on there of a guy getting bit by a dog because the dog is rabid. And Pasteur is the one famous for coming out with the rabies vaccine. And he was, uh, he was using rabbit spines to create it. And a guy named Joseph Meister, Joseph Meister got bit by a rabid dog he, when he was 12, I think. His mom brought, her, brought him to Louis Pasteur he wasn't ready for human trials yet. I think he was going to test it on himself. He was pretty confident it was working, but he wasn't ready. And she begged him to do it anyway. He did, and the kid lived. Supposedly, that's written on his tomb. Joseph Meister lived. I really would. I hope to make a trip to Paris, God willing, sometime and pay my respects. But he also was really humble. He did not like taking accolades and big awards and gaining all this glory for his work, but he would accept the awards to validate his work. Oh, and he could have been really, really super rich. He did not patent some of his uh, discoveries so that they would be affordable to common people. Saved a lot of lives. That one, we'll probably talk more about that when we talk about biology, but this, I like him for this too because he punched evolution in the face so hard during his time that he almost knocked it unconscious. Of course, it regained consciousness later, but... This is an experiment that he did to disprove what they then believed was spontaneous generation that bugs can, you know, spring out of rotten meat and stuff like that. And he showed that no life only comes from life. And then people accused him and said, oh, well, you had it exposed to the air, that broth. So that's where we think this life force is generating these, these little, you know, pests. So he did the swan neck flask experiment where it had access to air, but it would had a little trap in it. It would trap the bacteria and stuff like that. And the broth didn't spoil. And the rest is history. Whoops. Okay, so to some, no, it doesn't matter. Example, you all know who this is. <laughs> I told you to give me a picture that I could broadcast. She is well known throughout the United States and yet stays with me. <laughs> But here's what she said, essentially, I think I've got this right. I believe God created everything. I don't really need the details. <laughs> so does it matter to some people? No, it doesn't really bother them. Oh, yeah, she did, uh, she did go to the Creation Museum with me because I'm such a huge fan. And uh, on our 25th wedding anniversary, she planned a surprise trip on me to the full-size ark in Kentucky. That was really cool. There's a picture of it right there. It's huge. Those little dots are people. It looks like a cargo ship. They built it to the specifications in the Bible. Full size. Best anniversary trip ever. Thanks a bunch, hon. <laughs> I had to reply for her. <laughs> okay, to some, though, it does matter. To some, it does matter. In fact, um, those whose faith is harmed by secular evolutionary doctrine, here's one of them. Anybody know who it is? He's real young there, though. That is uh, nicknamed the Canadian Billy Graham. 
it's said that he had some of the biggest youth, biggest youth for Christ uh, gatherings in North America. His name is Charles Templeton, Canadian Billy Graham. And he did work on some projects with Billy Graham, some, some ministry he worked on with him, and they had discussions together. And that what was kind of ironic about that is there's how it turned out. Templeton was saying there is no God, and he does say that it was evolution that led him to that too. Excuse me, we're not going to be talking about evolution too uh, deeply in this, these classes because I'm focusing more on the, the age factor, but uh, we can. If you want to bring up some of that stuff, I can answer questions. Um, you got Billy Graham on the right says, trust God, and Charles Templeton on the left says, there is no God. His, this is interesting. If you guys get a chance, I did provide the link for it right there. You see that footnote. Uh, he, when he was talking to Lee Strobel, Lee Strobel, some of you probably already know, did this 21 months of research about the gospel, about Jesus, because he was felt like he was losing his wife to Christianity. He was pretty agnostic or atheistic and uh, journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and his wife became a Christian. So he researched it for a while. He took it. He did it a, a fair job on the research. One of the people he interviewed was Charles Templeton. And during that interview, he, he said that the guy was like just stone cold, you know, in his renouncement of God. But then when he mentioned Jesus, it cracked something, melted a little bit. And the guy actually wept and said he missed Jesus. Charles Templeton did. But to my knowledge, he never did return to him. There's the book he wrote, Farewell to God. Reasons, my reasons for rejecting the Christian faith. He wrote, he put that out in 1996. Uh, to some others, it does matter because uh, grand, grandparents and parents of children who are going off to college and leaving the church in droves. I've actually heard a recent statistic of 80 percent. The 20 somethings. I mean, up till now. I mean, I guess a few years back, I was hearing up to two thirds, and now it's even possibly higher. Some college professors are definitely hostile to faith in God. What's the real time right now, please? 7.27. You guys got time to watch a, a like a four-minute clip? You, you better steal yourselves, though. This guy, I mean, he doesn't use cussing and vulgarity, but he says some stuff that is going to make you sick. Viewer discretion is advised. And there's a whole galaxy. It's about a billion light years away. We're looking at it as it looked a billion years ago. Somebody... I forgot to mention he's a former professor out of uh, Arizona University. And he's a physicist and a cosmologist. And those stars no longer exist. And here's an object that's just a, a, as bright as the whole center of the galaxy. You think it's a star that's near in our galaxy that just got caught in the picture frame. It's not. It's a star on the edge of that galaxy that has exploded. And exploding stars shine with the brightness of 10 billion stars. They're the brightest fireworks in the universe, supernova. And they're remarkable. I, I, I keep having a size. Maybe I'll get to my point eventually. But um, the, the, um, this is something that, that, that I wrote a whole book about. And someone asked me yesterday why I wrote that book. Because it is the most poetic thing I know about the universe. Um, Richard wrote a great book called Our, uh, called, what's it called? Our Ancestors. What's it called? Ancestors Tale. Yes, I, I wanted to make sure I got that right. Uh, and, and I wrote a book that was a different ancestor's tale, called Adam. But the amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than your right hand. 
It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics. You're all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution weren't created at the beginning of time. They're created in the nuclear furnaces of stars, and the only way they can get into your body is if the stars were kind enough to explode. So forget Jesus. The stars died so that you could be here today. Okay? And, and anyway. I told you. <laughs> I can't imagine if my child was a student of this guy. I mean, I don't hate the guy. I consider him deceived, but what's that? Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. If I got a chance, if I ever had a chance to talk to him, that's Lawrence Krauss, or to Richard Dawkins, would I talk to him about creation and young earth and all of that? Nope. I would probably use Ray Comfort's method, and he bypasses the apologetics type of argument and goes straight for the conscience. He uses the 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 law of God to do what it was meant to do, which is convict. It's kind of amazing. If you get a chance, watch Way of the Master. If you watch any of those episodes, you'll see what I'm talking about. People throw rocks at him, street preachers and stuff, throw stuff at him, and it's amazing. But one person threw rocks at them and then came and found him and Kirk Cameron at their hotel and gave his life to Christ. So people, if they give an angry response at first, don't be surprised because they have a better chance of converting to the Lord than somebody who is apathetic. Okay, so like I said, next, uh, next week, God willing, we will talk about the evidence from Scripture and then possibly some of it from astronomy. I'm sorry I didn't leave you any time for questions. See you next week, you guys. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.